Yo, 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 Thought Warriors. What is up? Higher Learning is on. It is I, Van Lathan Jr. Wow. It's me, Rachel and Lindsay. Sorry, I'm looking at breaking news. Tennessee House votes to expel State Representative Jones. Talk about it. Um, I, I He's walking out, like right now, he's walking out of the, the courthouse with his fists in the air. I guess they haven't made a vote on the other two. So if, if you guys haven't been paying attention right now, we've talked about what's going on in Tennessee. There's a lot going on. Um, but right now, What's about to happen in the Tennessee legislature is absolutely despicable. So today they are voting on expelling three Democrats over gun protests. Now, you know, if you've been following the news, that there was the recent shooting at that school in Tennessee where six people lost their lives. Um, today, the how the, their legislature, which is Republican-led, is voting to whether or not to expel three Democrats Three Democratic lawmakers who recently led a protest from the House floor calling for gun law reforms. Um, those representatives are Gloria Johnson, Justice Jones, and Justice Pearson. As you just heard me say, uh, Representative Justin Jones was just expelled. Uh, they do acknowledge that they didn't follow the rules of order and decorum by speaking without formally being recognized. But now they're facing a disciplinary measure that's only been used twice since the 1800s. Um, they're obviously exercising their First Amendment rights and they recognize that, that what they're doing doesn't follow the rules, but this is just where you reprimand them. You don't actually remove them from office. Like the fact that they that there's even the power to do this over them exercising not just their First Amendment rights, but what their constituents want. They were standing alongside a fellow uh, voters from Tennessee who are urging the legislature to make a change in regards to gun reform after what's not just happened recently, but what's been happening in the state of Tennessee and throughout the country. And for that, they're being punished. This is insane. Donnie, I just sent you something. Did you get it? Okay. I got it. And okay. it's ready. So I want you guys to hear a back and forth that I actually posted to the gram just before this. This back and forth is between a Republican state representative who asked Justin Jones um, what he meant by no justice, no peace, which is something that he was chanting when he was out there protesting. Donnie, give that to us. When you say no action, no peace, what do you mean? What does Representative Jones mean by no peace. Thank you. Representative Jones. Thank you. Um, I would invite my colleague from Putnam County to join any protest where that is a very familiar chance that usually goes no justice, no peace. And I believe the roots of it are, are lie in something that Martin Luther King stated, that true peace is not merely the absence of tension, but it is the presence of justice. That's what I was saying is that until we act, there will be no peace in our communities. In addition, I would like to read some context about that chance that comes from Jeremiah 6.14. I'll read the New Living 
translation. It says, they offer superficial treatments for my people's mortal wound. They give assurances of peace where there is no peace. I'll go to the New International Version. They dress the wound of my people as though it was not serious. Peace, 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 they say, where there is no peace. That's what the chant means, is that we have no peace. And that until we act, there will be no peace for the thousands of children who came here demanding that we act. We're afraid that if they're in school, they'll be gunned down because you have passed laws to make it easier to get a gun than it is to get health care in this state. You've passed laws that make it easier to get a gun than it is to vote in this state. And so that there will be no peace in Tennessee until we act on this proliferation of weapons of war in our community. That is the peace I was talking about. That is what I was saying. Okay. So, um, like Rachel said, that young man has now been kicked out of um, the uh, the Republican-led Tennessee um, State House. And he is. There was a uh, a protest. Um, they led the protest on the House floor uh, about gun laws, and they kicked him out for it. Okay. 72 to 25 was the vote. 72 to 25 was the vote. Okay. So there are some things to understand here. Number one, obviously, we understand that this is political um, and this is punitive. You rock the boat too much, somebody's going to push you out of it. That's the way that it goes. It'd be interesting to know, and maybe Donnie can look it up, this hasn't been invoked or no one's been removed from uh, the the Tennessee House of Representatives since 1800. Is it, that's it's I, happened it, twice? Yeah, since the 1800s. It's happened, it's happened twice since 1800. So wait a minute, it's happened twice. This is the third time or the second time? It's been used twice. Okay. So it would be interesting to know what it was used for then. Not mm-hmm. that it matters. But it would be interesting to know, at least historically, uh, this is breaking, so we haven't been able to really, this is happening in real time, guys, so bear with us. It'd be interesting to know what met uh, sort of the criteria to do that then. Um, So, Donnie, if you can kind of work on that kind of while we're talking, uh, just jump in with it when you got it, Ben Affleck style, uh, when you want to discuss it. Now, look, this kind of goes back to a conversation that we have here all the time. Okay. They're not fucking around. Mm-mm. They're not. Mm-mm. They're not fucking around. They've told you who they are over and over and over again. You cannot ever be surprised by who they are. So this should come as no surprise. The fact that they essentially use the nuclear option on these politicians, none of you out there should be the least bit surprised. What should surprise you or what you should be asking is how do you want your elected officials, your activists, and your advocates to deal with this? Okay? They are, they are going to the mattresses. This has nothing to do with anything that, ha- that, that happened on the House floor. If they make an argument that says, hey, we want to make sure that we establish clear rules and guidelines and what is acceptable from elected officials on the House floor, they could have done that by reprimanding the individuals in question. It's the political death penalty to remove them, Mm -hmm. essentially. 
And they went there and they didn't blink. And they won't, Rachel. And they won't. I I am not shocked that they did it. I think the shocking thing is these rules exist on the books where either people know them and, and they would never take the opportunity to exercise it or they have no idea that these even exist. I think that's what's shocking is that something like this where the legislature can have this much power to just seems like to based on anything, if you violate the decorum by any means, they have the power to just kick you out when there's a majority led legislature. That's what I think is the shocking thing to me is that there's so much power to do whatever you want, even if it is politically based. It's not what they did. It's the how they're able to do it. That's shocking to me. What do you mean how they're able to do it? What do you mean by that? As in like, that's a rule. That's allowed. Like there's no, um, there are no boundaries. There's nothing holding them back to be able to, able to exercise this power. They, that's what I think, that's what I mean by the how. That well, seems to be shocking to me. Go ahead. I mean, impeaching and removing someone is available at you know, but the pretty basis much every level. of it. The basis, the basis of it, it is, is what I'm saying. This when you say the basis of it, are you talking about the, the criteria for removal? Correct, correct. Which is what? Tell people what that is. Well, I, I don't know what it is, but this to me seems to be a minimal thing because Donnie just pulled up the other two incidents where this was actually exercised and what that was based off of. So you had Representative Robert Fisher um, was kicked out of the house in 1980 after being convicted of soliciting a $1,000 bribe in exchange for trying to squash pending legislation. Pause. A criminal pa- act. Pause. Real quick. So let's let's look at that. That strikes right at the heart of your ability to govern fairly. That is the most fundamental of errors or crimes that you commit. If you are essentially taking bribes in exchange, which we all know they do, in exchange for affecting policy, then you are absolutely unfit to be in any one state house anywhere. Continue, Rach. Also, a crime was committed here. A crime, That is not what these three representatives did by you exercising their First Amendment right to protest. Um, the second one, 1866, the year is important. Six lawmakers were ousted during a special session after they tried to prevent Tennessee from ratifying the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution to provide citizenship to former slaves. Oh! So, Rach, <laughs> hit them with it again so we know. Just one, just one more time. Say, say it one more time, Rach. The year is 1866. Six lawmakers were ousted during a speci- special session after they tried to prevent Tennessee from ratifying the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution to provide citizenship to former slaves. Okay, so in that situation right there, this is a set of choices that were made. Okay, two of these are political. One of these is actually a merit-based expulsion of a lawmaker. One is, we're not going to let you take our guns no matter what. And if you bring that fight to the state house doors, then we will find a reason to get rid of you. The other one is an age-old American <laughs> adage, no niggas. 
<laughs> the, the oldest rule in America, guys, and I don't care what you guys say, the oldest rule in America is simply no niggas. And if you go too hard, they'll remind you. <laughs> Question. Um, the Speaker of the House is Cameron Sexton. He, he likened what happened, uh, the protest that took place at the Tennessee State House, to an insurrection. Mm. Okay. I would imagine that people, okay, hold on. So let's, let's maintain as much objectivity as, as is possible okay, right you're now. Right. As, as we, I would imagine right. that people who, um, I imagine that would be the most compelling argument that they would make as to why they had to be so, uh, draconian, um, in the consequences for these lawmakers. Okay. Do you see any realm? Where being a part of or inciting any sort of uh, mass hysteria or um, protest or demonstration or chaos in a state house could or should lead to what happened to, to, to Justin Jones? No, not in the way that Justin Jones and the other two uh, Congress people conducted themselves. I do not think that that's it. I think that, like, listen, did they disrupt, you know, a, a order? Sure. That is what protesting does. Should they maybe be reprimanded for it? Sure. But to lose their position is extreme. And to compare it to January 6th, I'm sorry, where people lost their lives, where people were shitting in the Capitol, where they were calling to hang people, they were threatening, they were tearing things down. Like, that's a totally different situation. You might not like wh how these people did it, as it, not how, but like where they did it and the position that they had as far as protesting gun reform, but nothing. No, it is ludicrous. Unless you're referring to the January 6th that Tucker Carlson showed on his show, based on that video, I could see how maybe that's what you're thinking. Not what actually happened in real life. There's one more uh, example that Donnie just put in the chat. Thank you so much for this, Johnny. Wait, wait who? Donnie. <laughs> Donnie on the spot. I was about to call. I was about yeah, get to call it, you. Get it right. Wait, wait a second. <laughs> I was in my mind. I was about to call. I was, was going to say, you're not Johnny on the spot. You're Donnie on the spot. Uh, 2016, when the chamber voted 72 to remove then Representative Jeremy Durham, Republican, um, from the House over allegations of sexual misconduct. Okay. So that's in the throes of the Me Too movement. And it was a situation to where they probably, they, they nuked that guy, uh, because of his, uh, his uh, allegations and because of where the country was. was. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go back to uh, House Speaker Cameron Sexton. He added, what they did was try to hold up the people's business on the House floor instead of doing it the way they should have done it, which they have the means to do. They actually thought that they would be arrested. And so they decided that them being a victim was more important than focusing on the six victims from Monday. And that's appalling. Uh, uh, so this essentially takes away, this undoes an election, which all impeachments and removals basically do, besides mm -hmm. Supreme Court justices and um, uh, district judges and federal judges who are appointed, uh, who aren't elected. So. And that's another reason why it should only be the last, last, last resort because you're 
essentially undoing democracy when you do something like this. All right. Uh, for me, looking at what was said, and but by Sexton just then, and putting everything together, I would love to know the feelings of Justin Jones right now. I know he's been very active on Twitter. I know that he's talked about this and, and the others that are involved. I just want everybody to know the links that the other side is willing to go to. And I, I want everyone to always be aware of that. This puts us, as we talk about it, be it left-leaning, liberal, or people who care about freedom, justice, um, and value in life, it puts us in an awkward position. And I really feel this way. And I, I'm, uh, the awkward position that we're in sometimes is that we have to, I'll talk about myself. So these are the moments where it feels like criticizing Joe Biden, criticizing local elected leaders that might be Democrats, having conversations about what you need from specific political factions. It seems like it's cutting off your nose to spite your face. These are the moments where you sort of get kicked in your ass and you go, well, there's no real way to do this now except for treat it like it's a football game. Because while we're trying to navigate uh, a complex political landscape in terms of what the base is on the left or what it means to be a black American and demand things from your politicians or what it means to be a person, a man, and want to advocate for women, all of these things are more complex uh, political ideas. The conversation on the other side is very simple. Kill them all. Hmm. Like, kill them all. And it's an easy rallying cry to kind of get behind. Kill them all. Hmm. They want to get your guns, kill them. They want reproductive rights for women, kill them. They want to have a conversation about contextually who America has been through the lens of race or even including race, kill them. They want to have conversations about the LGBT community and what it means to be inclusive. They want to have conversations about the progression. Kill them, kill them, kill them, kill them, kill them. That's what it is. Kill your, uh, kill the discussion of history. Uh, kill the discussion around weapons. Kill the, just kill, 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 kill kill the same thing that these weapons are doing to children. Mm. And so really, I think some of the conversations we need to have are about you know what? I don't know what the conversations we I don't know how you do it. It's There's no well, way to do it other than kill them all back, right Rachel? That's exactly what I was about to say. I mean, two black people, one woman. Two, the two black men are the youngest two of the youngest black men sitting right now in the house. And the woman, Gloria, is one of the few women that currently sits in the house. So this was probably, not probably, 
this was the opportunity to sever the head of their young black and female political careers mm-hmm. on Sunday first. It looks that way. Yeah. Objectively. You know, forgive me if it sounds a little militant, but if this is the way we're playing the game, well, the only way to even have a dog in the fight or to even be successful and win is to to match that same energy. I was listening to Morning Joe and he was talking about it, but he was referring to the vote that just happened in Wisconsin with the Supreme Court and uh, Democrats taking control over the Supreme Court, which is a big issue because Wisconsin is just a state that we watch politically these days. And he was saying that in that particular race where the woman, please forgive me, I don't know her name, where she beat um, the Republican who was an extreme far right uh, uh, guy running for Supreme Court, he said that they ran an extremely dirty race. Mm. And what Democrats are finally getting hip to, and particularly what she got hip to, is to fight just as dirty as he was fighting. And I think that that is where we are right now. We talk about a civil war coming, but it seems like it's more likely for that to happen sooner or later when if this is how you're fighting and if the only answer is to fight back this way, we're just going to go at it. Yeah. Okay. Look, um, guys, we, we realize we're being reactionary, but this just happened. And we are uh, reacting in, in real time to the stakes here. And Jones called this a political lynching. Mm-hmm. And I really don't is. see how you could argue. And that's me being as objective as it can be. All right. That was pleasantries today because now we have to get <laughs> to the podcast. This was kind of how we started. We have a fantastic interview coming later with Will Packer. He has a great movie on Peacock uh, right now called Praise This. Rachel, Will, and I talk about a great many things. Yeah. It's a good conversation. Love it really Packer. was. Later on. But first, before that, we're going to get to the big deal of the day, which is actually not what just happened in Tennessee, but <laughs> the indictment of Donald Trump, the information that you need, what uh, D.A. Alvin Bragg said, and really the question, how strong is the case against former President Trump? That's on the other side of this break. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Simmons. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, so uh, uh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump is your big deal of the day, and the indictment 
on Donald Trump, uh, we know a little bit more about now. Alvin Bragg had uh, a press conference and the indictment itself was released until you could see it. You can read it up. You can get, get your information from it. We are actually joined by somebody who's going to help us make sense of this because we didn't want to make, we didn't want to have you guys out here saying the wrong stuff to your friends. You know what I mean? Making a fool of yourself. So we got <laughs> Michael uh, Sisak to join us today. He is a law enforcement journalist with the Associated Press. He's been in New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., all the hoods. Provided coverage of events while reporting from the Manhattan courthouse. That was ground zero for a, a lot of dust-ups right there, wasn't it, Michael? It was, yeah. This was the uh, venue for the arraignment. First time we've ever seen, you know, a former president of the United States in court facing criminal charges. And then, of course, outside the courthouse, you had a lot of activity with pro-Trump supporters, uh, people who are against uh, Trump. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and George Santos were there, members of Congress. Uh, there were even when you were in the court waiting as Donald Trump was coming in, you could hear, you know, people whistling, blowing whistles, chanting, uh, cheering at times. Uh, it was definitely a you know circus like or carnival like atmosphere around there uh, this week. Michael, you were in the courtroom. I was. Yeah, there were about uh, 50 or 60 reporters that were actually able to get into the courtroom where Donald Trump was arraigned. Um, and then other reporters could watch from overflow courtrooms where it was broadcast on a, on a closed circuit type setup. Um, but yes, I was in the actual courtroom, uh, watching as he came in, uh, watching as he, you know, firmly said not guilty, um, watching as the prosecution raised questions about his social media posts about the DA and the judge and, and other people involved in the case. Um, yeah, it was it was something certainly in my career that, you know, I, I've never seen before a president, mm -hmm. you know, in court facing criminal charges, certainly. And and just something very surreal in a sense and and uh, just different from the ordinary, you know, uh, goings on at the courthouse. OK, so before we get into the indictment itself and what it means, let's hear a little bit from uh, D.A. Bragg. Donnie, give us a little bit of it was about 13 minutes that he spoke about and, and went to some detail about what the indictment meant, why these uh, crimes, why there was 34 counts of them, why these crimes that are normally misdemeanors were escalated to felonies. Uh, we're not going to give you the whole thing, but we'll give you a little taste of the tone and the tenor uh, of Bragg's press conference. Earlier this afternoon, Donald Trump was arraigned on a New York Supreme Court indictment returned by a Manhattan grand jury on 34 felony counts of falsifying business records in the first degree. Under New York state law, it is a felony to falsify business records with intent to defraud and an intent to conceal another crime. That is exactly what this case is about. 34 false statements made to cover up other crimes. These are felony crimes in New York state no matter who you are, we cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. Okay, so Michael, I have a question for you. If I were an incredibly lay person and I asked you, what would you need, what would I need to know? A citizen of this great country, that's this okay country, um, a citizen <laughs> of this country. And I asked you, what would I need to know about Trump's indictment? What would you tell me? 
Yeah, I think the the thing that stood out to me first that that would be good to know is it's not just hush money about it's not just about Stormy Daniels, I should say. It's not just about that one instance of alleged hush money payments. Um, the charges stem from this, the Stormy case that we kind of all know about from the years of investigation, from Michael Cohen, from, from that sort of stuff. But what uh, DA Bragg has laid out, what his prosecutors have laid out, is that this was part of what they call an illegal conspiracy to undermine the integrity of the 2016 election. And they point to two other instances, one of which we know some about and the other one that hasn't been nearly as covered as much. Uh, Karen McDougal, she was a Playboy model that was paid by the National Enquirer through an arrangement involving Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen and uh, the publisher of the National Enquirer. And then this other case where uh, the National Enquirer paid $30,000 to a Trump Tower doorman. Uh, that doorman, you know, alleged to have a story that Donald Trump uh, fathered an out-of-wedlock child or, a, you know, through an extramarital relationship, that kind of thing. Uh, that has never been proven, but nonetheless, even the allegation they felt could be damaging. And the allegation from, from D.A. Bragg is that these are three examples of this concerted effort to what they call catch and kill these stories. So mm-hmm. while we talk a lot about Stormy Daniels, and that's certainly central to this case, what they're trying to say is that this goes beyond just that one instance, that there were um, multiple attempts to to take these stories that could be embarrassing to Donald Trump and to suppress them from, uh, from the voters and from the public. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting is, and as people are, you know, talking about whether just talking about Trump and the whole media circus of it all. People either seem to believe that there, that Alvin, DA Alvin Bragg has a lot of evidence and Trump's going to be found guilty or it is the complete opposite that he hasn't quite shown that this rises to the level of a felony and he's going to get off and that, and that Alvin Bragg didn't provide enough information to the public in regards to why this rises to the level of a felony. And I was wondering if you could speak to that? Because there seem to be a lot of critics that do not believe that this is a felony. Um, did Alvin Bragg prove that? Not prove because like, he doesn't have to, but did he sl- um, outline that in the indictment or in something he said or maybe something we didn't see in the courtroom since you were in there? Maybe this will clear it up a little bit. Yeah, I think that that's a, that both this both arguments are kind of interesting and will you know bear out as we go on in this process as more evidence is turned over. Certainly, as we hear from witnesses, um, the whole thinking about Alvin Bragg sort of in his career as DA was you know what is he going to do about Donald Trump, right? Because he comes into office, inherits a case against the company, against uh, the former CFO. Um, you have that already pending. Um, and then he backs off of a potential indictment of Donald Trump, which is outlined, you know, in the book by his former prosecutor and and sort of that public debate. Um, he gets the conviction of the company and then they are reviving this case, which, you know, had been known around the office as the zombie case because it had been investigated over and over again without charges being brought. Now he has brought charges. He um, has, you know, shown on one hand that he has stuck to his word that the investigation was ongoing and active. Um, but on the other hand, he has opened himself up to criticism from people who see, you know, not only on the right, but also on the left who see, um, that there are other cases out there that could be potentially more damaging to Donald Trump. You have the classified documents, January 6th, the Georgia investigation about, uh, the, uh, election interference that, that is alleged to have happened there. Um, so you have all that going on, um. The reason Alvin Bragg says he's able to charge these crimes as a felony as opposed to a misdemeanor is because of what he cites as a state law 
uh, making it illegal to interfere, influence uh, an election. Uh, now, critics will argue that since this was a presidential election, federal law should apply. Um, mm. Alvin Bragg was not specific in whether he's also alleging allegations of federal law. Uh, and the law is kind of untested in this area. There haven't been too many cases, certainly no cases involving a former president, but really no cases involving a state prosecutor bringing charges uh, that hinge on a violation of federal law. So that may be argued out as this case unfolds. I'm certain that Trump's lawyers are going to argue that there is no basis for felony charges or, in fact, maybe any charges. Um, and of course, there'll be pushback from from Alvin Bragg saying, uh, you know, it's a federal election, but also voters in New York state were maybe duped by these uh, acts as well. So as I understand it, this is the way it works. Stormy Daniels is going to make some problems for Trump. Trump wants to pay her the $130,000. Michael Cohen pays the $130,000. Then he gets reimbursed by Trump. Trump signs a check. The check says it's for legal services. That is falsifying business records. Bragg is claiming that if you falsify business records in for, for the purposes of covering up a crime, then that's not a misdemeanor, that's a felony. What I think mm. people don't understand is what you just laid out is what essentially is the crime that was covered up. Um, because I guess misleading voters or willfully with knowledge uh, trying to suppress information from voters is a crime which would rise all of this stuff to felonies. I guess one question is, I watched Bragg say that he had new information because the the, the prior uh, DA, the, the prior, uh, his, his predecessors did not want to prosecute. And of course, the Justice Department uh, kicked that off, didn't want to prosecute. Bragg says they brought this case when it was ready. He had new information or new evidence that made him want to bring the case. Do we have any idea what that new evidence is? What the prior DA didn't have that Bragg has now? We don't know specifically what that new evidence is. I know he teased at it and we're kind of eager to find out what that is. But we know from the way this investigation unfolded that David Pecker, who was the head of the company that owned the National Enquirer at the time, he came in and testified early on and then came back right toward the end of the investigation. And he was involved in the transactions involving Karen McDougal, uh, who is the Playboy model, former Playboy model, and then also this doorman. Um, the doorman really wasn't part of this uh, conversation. You know, we, we heard a lot about Stormy Daniels and we heard some about Karen McDougal. So there may be something there. Um, also, there's a question about how much information has been gleaned from uh, Donald Trump's tax records and other financial records that were obtained through a long fight in the Supreme Court uh, through through a subpoena process that happened under the predecessor. And now, you know, uh, Alvin Bragg's office has been evaluating those records. Um, there may have been information that came out also in some fashion through the investigation of the Trump organization, which was cover, uh, which was a convicted in December of, of tax fraud in an unrelated case involving perks they gave to, to their executives. Now, in that case, we saw examples of Donald Trump's personal general ledger, uh, which is where he keeps all the records like legal expenses for Michael Cohen. Um, in that case, they talked about how Donald Trump wrote checks for one of his top executives to pay uh, private school tuition for his grandkids, right? But if you already have those ledgers, you also then have an opportunity to look at other transactions that may have been 
misca- mischaracterized. Um, I don't know, you know, for a fact what the new evidence is, but I'm just thinking about the, the scale of this investigation and, and how bringing fresh eyes with Alvin Bragg's office, with Matthew Colangelo, whom he hired to run this investigation, um, they could they could be looking at some things that maybe, you know, some leads that weren't turned over, so to speak. Mm. Okay, Michael, so we have a lot of time between the next time we see Trump potentially in court. It's April. December right now is when the next hearing is set, which really is a long time. However, you were in the courtroom and, you know, we've, you know, been reading up on it as well as far as this gag order, which seems to be that's been placed on Trump to not do anything on social media. Please correct me if I'm wrong in regards to inciting a protest. Go ahead. So just uh, uh, to for clarity, there there wasn't there is no gag order. The judge said he is is not inclined to issue a gag order. And he gave two reasons for that. First, free speech rights of any American. And also he cited, you know, the fact that Donald Trump's running for president makes yeah. it even more complicated to restrict what he says. But what he did do is he urged Trump's lawyers and he also urged prosecutors to do that yeah. to remind Trump and to remind witnesses, people involved in the case to uh, be mindful of of rhetoric that could inflame violence or civil unrest. So he didn't exactly say don't do it, but he he kind of strongly cautioned like a, you know, like a like a parent saying, hey, hey, you know, don't you know, you should really, really think twice about doing that. Um, before you do um, nothing legally binding, but certainly if it continues, there could be other other remedies, including possibly a gag order. And that's that's my question. And thank you for for clarifying that. Um, immediately after he took to, you know, his so- social media and went out there and started, you know, raging on social media. And although he's not specifically, you know, saying things to calling for a certain action, his words are we know hold a lot of power with his fan base. How likely do you think it is that based on what he's doing, and this is just right the day after, and there's a lot of time in between, that this will ramp up to a level where the judge might call them back in, might potentially in- issue a gag order or accelerate the case. I know that there's been some discussion surrounding that. Um, and I know that Trump's people are trying to get it pushed back even past December because obviously primary and here, you know, all of that. But how likely is it that this case could be accelerated? Uh, I don't think it's too likely at this point that we'll have it accelerated only because there are certain requirements of evidence being turned over and then the sort of pretrial fights over motions. But I could see a scenario potentially where there are restrictions placed on what Donald Trump is able to access in terms of that evidence. They've actually talked about that already. Uh, the prosecution wants an agreement. They're working on it with the defense where Donald Trump would be barred from posting evidence to social media or disseminating it to the media. Um, their fear is that that could taint the jury pool, that could uh, intimidate witnesses. So we're going to see that as a, as a uh, preliminary, preliminary step to kind of remedy things. Um, and then also if, if this rhetoric continues to escalate and if it's uh, people in, involved in the case, Donald Trump or others, I could see a scenario where the judge does crack down on that. We've heard already that there have been uh, death threats and other vile comments left for the judge, left for his staff. Um, Donald Trump, you know, hours after sitting in the courtroom, quietly listening to this warning, this admonition was on the stage at Mar-a-Lago talking about the judge. And then from practical purposes, the judge has a lot of control over what happens in this case. So if you talk to lawyers, you know, they may say, hey, you want to 
be on his good side. Not that the judge should hold things against the con- uh, defendant, but that that certainly makes things more awkward when you're when you're going after him and his family um, and riling up your your base. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm wondering one potential roadblock for there is that if Donald Trump is talking in his speech, his political speech, that is the golden goose of American free speech. That is the most, it's probably the most protective form of speech is political speech. And so the judge might have maybe a hard time deciding which parts of Trump's speech are worth censuring, if you will, and which mm-hmm. parts he has to let go in order to recognize the free speech. But if not, it would be kind of easy. You know, you go on there talking around, gag order, contempt, weak in jail, boom, boom. Like it could be really bad. If it was any one of us, it would be a lot, a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. This is where being a former president comes in handy. My last question for you is about David Pecker. Now, <clears throat> Michael Cohen in this situation is an easy slam dunk for bragging those guys. Michael Cohen is going to get on the stand and going to say whatever Bragg and those guys want him to say. He's had a long-running feud with Donald Trump ever since he was his lackey back in the day. Um, and Michael Cohen is going to say, Donald Trump told me to do this. Donald Trump knew. I know that he knew. Boom. The question about Michael Cohen is credibility. People know that he doesn't like Donald Trump. People know that he's lied before. People know all of this. David Pecker is a little bit different. As the head of AMI, which, by the way, uh, you guys, you know, AMI, just to let you guys know what it is. Men's Fitness, Muscle and Fitness, Flex, Fit Pregnancy, The National Enquirer, The Sun, Weekly World News, The Globe, The Star. That's the company that's in the middle of this kind of scheme or whatever, allegedly to help Donald Trump. His testimony, in my opinion, could be very consequential because he doesn't have the same credibility concerns that Michael Cohen would have in terms of you know, testifying for or against the president. Is there any sort of understanding? Okay. And I know catch and kill. Well, I used to work at TMZ. Is there any, is there, is there any, uh, understanding of where Pecker's mind is on this and what the prosecution and or Trump's defense is expecting him to do? It's a good question. Um, we don't have a lot of window into Pecker's mind. We know that he's been before the grand jury that's investigating, that was investigating this case and that, uh, that returned the indictment. Um, we saw him early on, uh, in this probe in January and February. Uh, and then we saw him again sort of as a rebuttal witness, as a last witness for the prosecution to make their, their case before, uh, before the indictment was handed up. Um, Pecker is an interesting character because he was a very close friend of Donald Trump's and he went through these great lengths to use his publication to bolster Donald Trump's image and also to help hide these negative stories. And and, and that's been laid out in the Michael Cohen case and the, the agreements that they had. But AMI, and perhaps to an extension, David Pecker signed a non-prosecution agreement with federal prosecutors over the Michael Cohen matter. The Michael Cohen matter really was mm. a campaign finance case because those transactions were like, like as if you donated $130,000 to Donald Trump's campaign, right? You were, you were helping, uh, fund the campaign by, by, you know, paying, paying somebody off. Um, it, that's the allegation. So by doing that, AMI and perhaps by extension, David Pecker have agreed to cooperate fully with investigations into matters related to this. So, 
that could be the hammer that prosecutors have on on David Pecker to ensure that he cooperates, to ensure that he testifies, and to ensure that that explosive kind of testimony about this agreement uh, is what is heard in court. Hmm. Uh, last question before I leave: what, What's the what's with that hat in the background right there? That with that hat with the red <laughs> A on it. What is that? What's what you got going on? This uh, uh, there's uh, two. Uh, one is like a old Bear Bryant, like a houndstooth hat, and the other one's an Alabama hat. I, I just throw a bunch of stuff on that shelf. And, why why do you have that? You don't mind me asking? Um, I went down there about 10, 15 years ago. I had an uncle that went to Alabama, and, and he was honored in their ROTC program. And uh, I don't know, it just looks cool. So I was like, you know what? Go roll tide. This, it, yes, it's going somewhere, Michael. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Well, you see this congratulations Michael? on the the... The national Michael, championship, yeah, women's Michael, championship, very nice. Michael, Michael, you see that? That's what I'm talking about. Now we want to have we want to have you back because you just did You're a great, ten Michael. out of ten bank up <laughs> job on making our audience uh, knowledgeable. But I want you to, to look. It's all about LSU, Mike. Okay, it's all about LSU. All right. <laughs> I can get on board with Go Tigers. Okay, <laughs> I love it, um, uh, Michael. I, I thank you so much. Uh, what a compelling, twisty, turny set of events here. Um, Donald Trump indicted, historic. We know more than we knew before. Mm-hmm. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today on yes. Higher Learning. Uh, we're going to come back with something else on the other side of this break, guys. Hold tight. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise. But if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, You're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Simmons. Okay. Uh, it's happening to me again. Your, your guy is back at it. Your cousin. Is back at it. <laughs> All right. So Van Jones uh, talked about the scene regarding uh, Trump as he was leaving the uh, the courthouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's actually entering the courthouse. And this is what Van Jones had to say on CNN. He, he looks sad. Yeah. Uh, he looks sad. Uh, he looks like um, uh, the weight of it's hitting him. And, you know, uh, just as a human being, like, I don't, I don't take I don't take joy. I don't like the prison system. I don't like what it does to people. I don't like this process. So I don't take any celebration in seeing uh, him looking that way. He looks sad. Now, does it mean that he, accountability is not owed? We don't know what he's going to be charged with. There's, there's a lot more. But at that moment, that is not a conqueror. 
that is a, a granddad having a very bad day. Rachel, did you have a problem with that characterization of Donald Trump? Uh, did I? I honestly thought, I was like, no, 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 no way. No way he said that. We must be taking this out of context. I tried to give Van Jones the benefit of the doubt. Then I went and I watched it and I said, no, that's what he said. And no, I don't feel that way, the, the same way as Van Jones. And did you see what he tweeted after? No, I didn't. In his see response. That so afterwards, he tweeted because obviously he saw all the backlash that he was getting in regards to that comment. I don't know what he thought people were going to say. I guess because nobody checked him on that panel he was sitting on, he mm -hmm. thought it was okay. So he takes to Twitter and he says, and I quote, I've spent 30 plus years fighting for criminal justice reform. I never want to become desensitized to the human reality this system has on individuals, families, and communities, no matter who the defendant happens to be. That is a really broad statement to make in regards to fighting for criminal justice system and lumping in defendants such as former President Donald Trump. So is that the same? thing that you apply to January 6th and those defendants? Is that the same sort of thinking that you apply to a George Zimmerman? I mean, take your pick. Like, that makes absolutely no sense. So because you've been fighting for criminal justice reform, that means, and you, you don't like the system as it is, that means that you're supposed to be, have empathy for every single defendant who happens to be on trial. This is Selective criminal justice reform. I'm sorry, Van, jo Van Jones has <laughs> Van Jones has a hard on for the Trumps and that entire family, and I am sick of us pretending like oh he just he misspoke or oh he just put his foot in his mouth. No, this is the man who the Kushner called for him to be removed from CNN, and then less than a year later, we're seeing Van Jones sitting next to Jared Kushner and buddying it up with their family, and there's been some sort of behind-the-scenes revolution to where now Van Jones keeps taking it upon himself to speak out on behalf of Trump. It's like that meme, nobody, 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 Van Jones wants to speak out on Trump. He can't help himself. So I want to understand Seriously, because it's almost as if, okay, so there's, there's two things. So either it's what you say it is, which I feel like most people think that it is. Or there's like, is Van Jones in his own way trying to scare us out of our echo chamber in some way? I, I, look. This, I'm going to do something right here, you guys. I agree with Rachel. I'm saying it before y'all get all mad. Yeah, I'm start, over here shaking start, my head. And start I'm typing like, away. Mm. Before y'all get <laughs> mad and start typing away, I agree with Rachel. It seems as if Van Jones has a very specific affinity for the Trump family. And we know this. We know he's been in pictures with Eric Trump. We know he worked very closely with the Trump family um, and with Jared Kushner to get the First Step Act passed. So he might actually like these people. Okay? Might like these people. Um, but I'm going to attempt to do something right now for fun. This is an attempted bail shoot. I'm going to attempt to shoot Van Jones some bail right now. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to be. You're going right to be now, Van Jones. I'm going to. No. <laughs> God damn you're, it. 
You're being Van Jones. Go I'm for it. I'm not being Van Jones. I'm there gonna he be, is. I'm going to be <laughs> Van Jones Lathan, defense <laughs> attorney. Give the I'm people gonna, what they want. I'm going to be Van Jones Lathan, defense attorney. I'm going to, Your Honor, I stand before Black Twitter with a client that seemingly has made a very egregious statement at a very critical time in American politics. It seems as if my client emotionally sided Mm. with Donald Trump in a day that so many of you found to be joyous. I submit that what you saw from Mr. Van Jones wasn't empathy, Hmm. that it was pity. It was pity for a man who's reached the bottom of the barrel. Hmm. It was pity mm-hmm. for a man who looked like a sad-ass granddad who's, I can't hmm. do it. Yeah, you can't do it because one, you make that a single act. He's a repeat offender. I would like to, at this point, introduce prior acts <laughs> onto the record. Pity. This is a man who left Mar-a-Lago, <laughs> flew on a private plane, landed, and was escorted to a tower that bears his name in the penthouse. What pity. So, what pity. So, so okay, so it's obvious. All right, so cool. I I tried it. It didn't work. I can't do it. But so Van Jones <laughs> just does I mean, look, I'm not, Van Jones doesn't give a fuck what, does he not care what, doesn't. It, what, what, he doesn't care. He doesn't care. Look, once again, guys, I'm going to say something. A lot of the work that Van Jones has done in criminal justice reform is like super duper essential. It's super duper essential. But if, and we, him and I have communicated before. We had an argument and stuff and I've been whatever. But if I could talk to him at this particular point, the question that I would ask isn't about Trump. It isn't about criminal justice. It's about black people. And it's about, the question I would ask Van Jones is, why does he feel so comfortable? Or, not question, not, I wouldn't ask it that way. That's the best way to ask it. I would ask him, does it bother him that he alienates such a noteworthy swath of black people? Mm-mm or people on his political side of the aisle with what seems to be a weird sort of devotion to President Mm. Trump. Does it bother him at all that he alienates people, that in some way he disconnects with those people over something that really is inconsequential to him? It would be one thing if Donald Trump were still president and Van Jones needed Donald Trump in some way to uh, get his criminal justice reform legislation through, I would almost go, okay, well, that's what politicians and political operatives do. But at this point, that's not even the case. The guy's not the president anymore. He's just another fucking criminal. Like, he's, you know what I mean? And and I don't, it's just, I don't know. Sonny Hostin asked him this when she had, when they had him on The View. Basically, you know, you've lost a lot of respect and trust from from black people and like prominent black people. And he said to her, 
I just, that's not true. So what I think it is, is he's surrounded himself with people who are praising what he does. I think he prides himself on believing he walks in the middle. He can talk to people on both sides and, in, and you can't, especially in this political climate, you got to pick a side. It is impossible to do it. And the more you keep walking this so-called line, the more you keep stepping on the wrong side of it. Because that's all I keep saying. And I'm not taking away from what he's done in the past, but just because you have done things that are amazing for criminal justice reform doesn't give you the excuse to then say whatever it is that you want because it's harmful. And when Fox News starts playing your your videos as quotes, it's a problem. You got to look at yourself and say, hey, I'm doing something wrong and stop listening to all the people you surround yourself with who aren't holding you accountable or in check. Well said. All right. On the other side of this break, uh, after Rachel just flamed up Van Jones, it's not me. I don't feel that way. I don't care. Okay. I, I really don't care. On the other side of this break, <laughs> I, you know, I, on the other side of this break, we have a delightful interview with Will Packer, the Me producer too. of a movie that I saw and enjoyed very much called Praise This, which is now available on Peacock. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small Slurpee drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that about me going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax, participating U.S. stores. See app for full terms. All rights reserved. All right, you guys, we have a real, real special guest. When I say real, real special guest, I mean somebody I have a great deal of respect for for many reasons. It's on the podcast right now. Will Packer. Um, I know y'all know the name. I know y'all know the game. Y'all know the movies. There is a new film called Praise This which is out right now on Peacock as we speak. Uh, I've seen the movie. It was delightful. I enjoyed delightful. it. Rachel, did you hear that? Yes. Delightful. He doesn't delightful. use that word too often, Will. So. I feel like a, a bad lacing word. I didn't know what you said. <laughs> I like um, that. We got Will Packer joining us today. Will, how you doing, brother? Man, man, come on, brother. First of all, you know that the respect is mutual. 
And I appreciate you taking some time to have me on. I really do. Thank you, Rachel. Good to see both of y'all, fam. I'm happy to be here. So I'm going to get this out of the way right now rather than do it at the end. Okay. All right. All right. Because we're going to talk about praise this. we got other questions for Will. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to get this out of the way. Right. Oh, now. boy. Right. You said that twice, Rachel. I know. I was this. like, what I is this? Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to go back to the year 2019. Uh-oh. I got okay. fired from TMZ. Yes. In a very public way when everybody saw it. Now, from the outside looking in, it doesn't look like my career skipped a beat, right? Because I move on to the next thing and I keep going, and I keep going, and I keep going. However, during that time of my life, there was an incredible amount of fear. I was scared. I was already going to leave TMZ. I only had about six weeks left there. However, with the way I left, I was wondering who would want to be in business with Van, who would continue, how I would move on with my life and the people that I have to support. Will Packer mm. gave me an opportunity. Mm. Will Packer put me right back on TV mm. on a show called Central Ave, right. um, where I got a chance to do my thing, my Van thing, on the street, and then even into the pandemic, like when I was doing it from here. And the fact that I got another opportunity, that I was back on television, that I was mm. back employed again, mm. took so much stress off me, mm. both financially um, and mentally. And it was a decision that was made uh, by Will Packer and Shayla and the people um, over there uh, that, are, that that run your shop. And I've never got a chance to tell you uh, how much that meant to me in a real way mm. and how important that wasn't just to me, but to my family. So mm. I, I, I have a great deal of respect for you for more than that. But thank you, Will. Seriously. Wow. Mm. Wow. My brother, I, I receive all of that, man. I really, really do. I so... I appreciate that. Uh, I acknowledge it. I'm just going to say, give us a moment here, Rachel. Let me talk to you. Oh, my no, brother, right? please take it. I'm just going to say black man to black man. It's what we're supposed to do. You are an asset. You have always been somebody that was right at the center of the culture, right? As you know, there were people that watched that previous show that you were on that platform because of you, because you were the voice and the only voice that was authentic to the culture. So for me to have a platform and have the ability to then reach out to someone that I always felt prior to the exit was undervalued on that platform, that is what I'm supposed to do. Like, you know, you heard that saying, I didn't work this hard to work this hard, right? That's, that's mm -hmm. you know, Puff is, loves to say that all the time. I didn't work this hard to not use my power in the way that I use it help. And I don't mean like hand up, hand out. I mean to help all of us as a community and as a culture, because you then elevated my show, right? Mm. You then took me, I had a show that was in a new space for me. It was a Fox syndicated show and I need somebody, I needed somebody with that authenticity that you brought. The thing that we can do that we don't do enough of, in my opinion, 
in the community, and I'm, I'm specifically the Black community, but this serves um, for all marginalized communities, anybody that's outside of the traditional power structure. We don't do is sharpen each other. The iron can sharpen iron if you allow it to, right? And if I don't see you and you and I, you know, I'm producer, you are definitely talent. You have, you know, a lot of different things that you have, have a lot of different things I do. But too often what I see us do is go at each other as if I can't win if you win. I can't, okay, all right, Van's off that show. He out the way. So let me see what I can do, right? To take advantage mm-hmm. of the fact that he's not, that's not what we need to do. We need to be lifting each other up. I don't mean that in some kind of just really corny, earnest kind of way. I mean, for the business of it, y'all, the mm-hmm. business, right? Like I get business. I make the, the, the content I make, I'm proud of, I'm not ashamed of it. I do it. I make popular content. I make content. I'm trying to reach a broad range of people. But I understand the economic imperative upon which we all have to operate, especially within this industry. And so I also understand that other people not valuing the culture is an opportunity for us to do it. So that's all I will say about that. I appreciate you saying it. Um, It was what I was supposed to do and it worked out for both of us. So just proud to be back here rapping with you. I appreciate you. I didn't, Rachel, I didn't know he was going where he said, let me get I this love, out the way. I, I, I didn't either, I was, but man, <laughs> I, I know I that was, wasn't directed specifically at me, but I needed to hear that. That was beautiful, beautiful no, and meaningful. And I love that. that. And I love that we just had that moment here on the show on Higher Learning. And it makes me think, Will, for you, what, everything that you're saying is so true. And it's so what we need, with just period overall, but specifically in our community. And I'm wondering, who did that for you? Yeah. Talk about sharpening each other. Who was that person or people for you? Yeah. Um, it, very clearly for me, it was uh, the Hudden brothers, Reggie and Warren, Warrington Hudden. Hold on two seconds, guys. I'm sorry. Close this so that, see that glare right there? I'm apologize, mm-hmm. guys. I'm, I'm, um, I can't be a producer and have my backdrop. <laughs> <laughs> I can't be having all that shy. <laughs> um, sorry, guys. Apologies on it's my okay. end. So, um, that's a good question, Rachel, because none of us, uh, none of us are islands. And I am not so naive as to think that my success is because I'm so amazing and I just do it all on my own and I just got it all figured out. Not at all. I had opportunities that um, that I got. And one of the first ones that comes to mind are the Hudlin brothers who gave me my first internship straight out of college, right? I went to FAMU, very, very proud HBCU grad, uh, FAMU Rattler in the house. And I graduated and then got an internship with the Hudlin brothers on a movie that they were doing that was called uh, Ride. It was called I-95 at the time. It was released. It was called Ride. Uh, I saw it, Ride. Remember that joint? It was like uh, a movie about a bus trip. A bunch of kids got on I the bus. I saw it in the theaters. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah, were going, exactly. they went to the bus. Yeah, I went to the theaters. Yeah. Entertainer. Absolutely. John Witherspoon, mm-hmm. God bless him. So I was the lowest on the totem pole on that movie, right? I was the guy that had to get the, the coffee for the camera department, I was in the ca- I was a camera department PA. They called me, but really I was the intern's intern. And so my <laughs> job was to make sure that the cable, because it's back before wireless, the cable that went from the camera to the director's monitor never got tangled. That was my job. This is we talking like big sexy stuff, y'all. Okay, <laughs> so that was my job. And whenever the director was, I had to move the monitor and I had to hustle. And I had people on that set that treated me like I was the lowest person on that. Set. I'm not gonna lie to you. And they treated me like, why are you here? You're in my way. You're not, it won't ever be nothing. And I had some other people that treated me with respect and treated me like, you know what? I see you out here working hard. Keep grinding. And the Hudlin brothers who gave me that opportunity, 
I remember having a conversation with Warrington Hudlin, who pulled me to the side to say, I see you. I see what you're doing. Keep going. Keep going. Keep striving. He gave me that little piece of word. Now, I wouldn't be me if I didn't take that opportunity to pitch the great Warrington Hudlin because I was on his set. And I had made my little movie called Chocolate City. And I said, Warrington, I so appreciate you. Thanks for the opportunity. Hey, I got a movie and I shot it at FAMU and I showed him my little videotape, my VHS that we had gotten in the blockbuster. And he said, okay, whoa, I'm going to stop you right there. He said, I didn't know where you were going at first uh, when you said you had a movie. He said, now I'll take this. He said, now the movie probably is not any good, brother. I'm going to be honest with you. I said, Warren, <laughs> you didn't even see it yet. He said, well, but it's your first movie. It's probably not that great. He said, but that's not the point. The point is that you have something that you have done. He said, in this industry, everybody's talking about what they're going to do, what they're about to do, what their plans are. 90% of people in this game are talkers. Don't be a talker, be a doer. And you already are ahead of the game because you've actually gone out and shot something. So it was amazing advice I got from him. And it was an opportunity that he and his brother gave me to come in and see how a a quote-unquote real Hollywood movie had worked because I had only done Chocolate City, which we shot as students at FAMU to that point. Mm. Mm. So I want to ask you something about Praise This. So going into Praise This, I, and it's a weird question, going into Praise This, I look at the movie, it's younger, it's got Chloe and Drewski, my man, Mac Wiles, shout out Mac Wiles. Shout out Mac. Um, It's got, and it's about the church, and I'm looking at the movie, and I'm a Catholic, right? So, and, And I'm a little older, and I'm thinking this movie isn't really for me. And then I watched it, Mm. And I liked it. Mm. I liked it a lot. Mm. Why? Why do you think a guy? <laughs> it, it, and that's it, 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 why do you think a guy like me, forty-two-year-old guy who's never been on the praise team, got yeah. shuffled between two <laughs> different uh, churches? Why did this movie like make me feel good and <laughs> delight me? Yeah, man. You know what? I appreciate you saying that because it was very intentional. That's what we were going for um, when I. I was pitched this movie by a young executive named Antoine Jenkins, and he was working for Tim Story at the time. Great director, Tim Story. Tim and I have collaborated on a lot of things, Ride Along, uh, Think Like a Man. We made those movies. And Antoine, AJ, we call him, came to me and pitched a movie about competitive praise teams. And I I got it. I liked it. You know, I always, I enjoy a movie like Pitch Perfect, uh, but my daughters never watched Pitch Perfect. They just weren't, it didn't connect with them. It didn't engage them, right? Um, I, I made a movie called the gospel before, um, I grew up in the church. I, I enjoy faith-based movies. I am a person of faith. The gospel did well for me. It was one of my first movies. It was actually Idris Elba's first, uh, theatrical movie after the wire. Oh. So a little, uh, little trivia right there. I, so, I, I know he, that. And I'm going to tell Southern you, preacher. I know that. I'm going <laughs> to tell you why I know it right after you're finished. Okay. Okay. I'm yeah. trying to know. Uh-huh. So basically when he pitched this movie, I was like, I like that. But I don't want to do a church movie, right? So this speaks to why I'm thinking, Van, that it might have connected with you in a surprising way. Because I actually wanted to make a movie. I took the same model that I did when I made Stomp the Yard. You guys remember Stomp the Yard. Hollywood did not want to make Stomp the Yard, okay? I Mm. wanted to make a movie at HBCU campus. I wanted to highlight Black Greeks, uh, you know, fraternities and sororities. And Hollywood was like, ah, we don't really get that. We don't really know what that is. Uh, why are there HBCUs? You know y'all can go to white schools, right? What's happening? So <laughs> I couldn't get anybody to finance that movie until I came back to them. I said, hey, 
What about a dance movie? You guys like dance movies? That's a genre that's successful and that is profitable. And I got interest to make a dance movie. I made that under the guise of the dance movie. I brought everybody in with the great dancing. And you remember Columbus Short on his head, Chris Brown dance mm-hmm. and all that. And then within that, you learn about HBCUs and fraternities and sororities. That was what I was trying to get out of it. I said, I want to do the same thing with this movie. You're going to come in and the mu- music's got to be banging. So you saw our band. I got Beyonce and Drake, mm-hmm. Meg Thee Stallion, mixed, yeah, mashed up with gospel lyrics. I did all that, right? And it's good and it's fun and it's funny. But along the way, I wanted you to learn about faith and spirituality because Chloe's character has lost her way, doesn't have a relationship with God, doesn't want one. And that relates to a lot of people. A lot of people who didn't grow up in the church, like maybe you did, Van, or maybe I did. A lot of people that feels like church is not for them. But I'm somebody that believes that it's not an institution, a denomination, a person that's the gatekeeper for faith and spirituality. So I wanted to make a movie that did not feel like it was just for the church crowd and did not feel like it was just for people that knew what that was, that got it. If you've never been a praise team, can't recite one verse. I wanted there to be something for you. And so if you came for, you know, the Drake gospel mashup, I wanted you to stay for a message about reconnecting with your faith and finding your own journey to your own personal spirituality. So Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that some of that came across. That was our intention, B. Yeah. Oh, Ben, I'll let you say your thing about issues before I go. So Will, so there was a Will Packer phase of my life before Will Packer became a go-to Hollywood producer. Okay. I'm going to tell you where it starts. I'm going to connect this to Idris Elba. There was an actress that I was obsessed with in the late 90s. Her name was Gretchen Palmer. Oh, wow. <laughs> Rachel, do you know Gretchen Palmer? No, I've I'm about to, that name. I, I feel like I probably only know her by face. Hold her on. Her name was Gretchen this. Palmer. Look her up, And y'all. I was obsessed with Gretchen Palmer. Yes! So, so anything... That Gretchen Palmer was in <laughs> during that time, I would see it. Yes. So I was at the video store one day, <laughs> and I rented a movie called Twa, was the name of the movie. <laughs> and it was about, uh, you had to do, because I recognize uh, Kenya Moore is in this housewife right. stuff, Ra- Rachel, That's and right. then yes. you met uh, Gary. I know Twa. <laughs> yeah, okay, so I read, and I'm like, I, I read the movie to see Gretchen, in some situations, whatever. And, and I watched it. I remember telling Ian, I was like, yo, bro, that shit was like good though. And, and Ian was like, he was like, what? Because my roommate Ian at the time, I was like, the movie, it was like actually good, right? All right. So I was on bandwagon, watched the second one and all of that stuff. Later on, my first job, like my real first job on a movie set, was on a movie called The Reaping. And it, it shot in uh, Baton Rouge. The gospel opened while we were shooting The Reaping. Uh, right? And Idris was on that movie. And so when I was like, I he would never remember me. So I was working on that movie. That was when I was the PA, like kind of situation on the movie. Yep. And then when I looked at the little thing that he had for the movie, The Gospel, I was like, oh, I know that name. That's the same guy that did the Gretchen Paul. So Rainforest <laughs> Films, all of that stuff. I had watched all of those movies and seen all of those movies. 
And now, years later, Idris and Look I have the now. same manager. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I so love that's, that. You, you with a Ronde? Yeah, with a Ronde. Yeah. Shout out to the OG. Absolutely. Super, super manager out in Hollywood. So a lot of don't people know. don't even know all how long it took for you and how many films you actually made to get to the point to where your movies were the biggest, biggest thing. You made a lot of films and put in a lot of work. And it sometimes seems like people don't give you or recognize you for the journey of your career. I appreciate that. You know how it is. We are uh, a what-have-you-done-lately society. We are an immediate uh, gratification, short-term memory society. Social media has made us like that. We all are like that. So a lot of people think that I just, like, Girl Strip was my first movie. Yeah, anything like a man was his first movie. I tell people, (laughs) yo, I, I, I've done, you know, approaching forty movies now, and I didn't do my first comedy until I was like twenty some movies in. People think, oh yeah, that's what you do. You do the comedies. I was like, bro, I was doing thrillers and uh, gospel movies and erotic thrillers. Like I was doing all kinds of other stuff. But that's the journey. That's Mm -hmm. part of it. And I would not be where I am today were it not for me doing movies like Twa with Gretchen Palmer that made a young, horny Van Lathan true film. That is the moral of the story, ladies and gentlemen, is that he was trying to see Gretchen Palmer get frisky, and that is how he found the Will Packer catalog at that time. It's very fitting to other things that he has said on this show. That's not a surprise to you, Rachel. No, not at all. He's probably surprised that I've seen Twa. He's probably surprised about that. But I want to go back to praise this because what I think is beautiful is that, you know, you speak out about your faith and and, and being spiritual, which I, I was on the praise dance team. So I, I grew up back. Yes, Van. Yes, Van. I was I'm always full of surprises. Um, I grew up Baptist from Texas. Okay. Okay. Not Southern Baptist, but Baptist. Mission. Yeah, you got you gotta say that. So, That's a yeah. whole nother world, but we get it. Yes. Yeah. Whole nother world. Um, but I love that that's a part of you. And from the gospel to now this, you do these faith-based films. And I'm wondering, is there ever or has there been any hesitation on your part? Because maybe the industry isn't as accepting of faith, or do you just say, This is me, this is who I am, and this is what I want to do? Well, I'm at a position now where I can, um, you know, I can flex a little bit more than, than, than I used to, right. Than I did when I was, when I was making some of my earlier fare and I have, um, I have a little bit more credibility. And so when I come in and say, this is what I want to do, and this is why, and this is the audience that I want to try to capture folks, listen to me because, um, frankly, because I've, I've made money. And I've mm-hmm. made money for Hollywood studios. And when you do that, they say, all right, what do you want to do next? But that's the barrier you have to get to in order to have that level of, uh, of credibility in Hollywood. So, you know, for me, I always look at it like, what is, what's the end goal? And does that justify the way that you got to get there? And so, as I mentioned, I didn't, I didn't want to do a movie that was like just in the church because I felt like, well, then I'll only get the people that relate to that. And I actually wanted to get something. I wanted to make something for the the Chloe's and Drewskis and Quavos of the world that are out there that feel like eh, church ain't for me. That's, you know, I don't feel welcome there. They don't play the music I like there. And a lot of, especially you talk about 20-somethings, a lot of them 
are a little bit rudderless and faithless and don't connect with their spirituality because they feel like, well, I don't want to go to some mega church or some small church. I don't want to be sitting in some pew. I don't, you know, I don't read the Bible. So that's not for me. And I'm here to say that it's bigger than that. So it is. And by the way, Rachel, it's always a battle. So I'm not saying that, you know, I get in, I, I walk into Hollywood and say, give me money. And they just hand over bags of cash. <laughs> like it doesn't work like that. I got to pitch my projects. I got to tell them what the plan is. I got to cast them correctly and work on the scripts and address notes. I got to do all that stuff. But if there's an area, a theme, um, a particular type of film that I want to make, I do get much more leeway now because I am established and have had some success with it. Um, and a lot of it is instinctive too. I have to trust my instincts that I have honed throughout the years. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about Chloe a little bit. She, this is an opportunity as far as I'm concerned from her, because I don't know that I've seen anything before this where Chloe is your senior, your, your singular central star. She is kind of driving this movie and she does a fantastic job. Talk about her star, where she is and like where you see her going. Cause she's really compelling, does a really great job in this movie. And she's, you know, a lot, always talk about Chloe Bailey. She knows how to get people talking about her. Um, and, and this movie was, a, was, was a great role for her. Yeah, I think so, man. I, you know, here's the thing about Chloe. We know she's talented. We've watched her literally grow up uh, before our eyes. Uh, it's been an interesting journey for her. Whenever you come in um, under that Beyonce umbrella, there's going to be a lot of good that comes with that and then a lot of not so great because of the pressure and the comparisons and all of that, right? She knows she's very talented, but that's not the thing that is going to make what I think is going to be a really, really successful career for her. And I have been very fortunate to work with some folks at the beginning of their successes, right? I don't claim anybody's successes. I've worked with some very talented folks. They were talented, you know, before me, they'll be talented after me. But I have had the platform that has allowed some folks to reach the next level of success, I will say. And I'm very proud of that. She's somebody that I think will reach that next level. She's poised for it. Here's why. Yes, her voice, she got the pipes, amazing. She has been working on her acting craft. She's been acting for a while. You will see if you see the movie. She does not drop the ball. I think she does a really, really good job with this character. Here's the thing that's going to separate her. Her work ethic. She works hard. That's the thing that you don't see. I've had the opportunity to work with Beyonce a few times. What separates her? Yes, she's amazing. She's gorgeous. She's talented. She's all that. She busts her ass. You're not going to outwork B. And B's at the point where she could just sit back and rely on her time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm B. Stop playing, right? She has such an attention to detail she has such a tremendous, unbelievable work ethic. And I see that in young Chloe Bailey. That's the thing. Even right now, you know, she, I joked with her the other day. I said, you got 17 projects out right now. Don't forget which one is Praise This, all right? Make sure you get behind <laughs> it. You, you got the album, you got Swarm, you got the tour, you know. 
But the reality is that she is willing to do what it takes. And those are the folks. And you guys know you're in this business with me. The most successful people aren't always the most talented. Mm. They're not always Mm -hmm. the ones that walk in the door with the most money. They're not the ones that have got the resources and the connections all the time. The most successful people in this business are the ones that work the hardest. Mm -hmm. And that is what she does. She is an incredibly hard worker. She has a tremendous work ethic. That's what I think is going to separate her. But all that being said, she's super talented. You know, know, it's got to, you got to have that. But, you know, you've heard the, the, the saying that hard work beats talent, but talent doesn't work. Don't work so mm-hmm. if we work in industry, well, there's a lot of talented people that don't want to put the work in. Y'all that know that. Very yep. true. Um, will Chloe be in Girls Trip too? Ooh, get right to it. The direct question. <laughs> what would Chloe do in Girls Trip too, right? I, I don't, like, know. I don't a... know. I don't know. I mean, she could be added into the friend group. She could be a little sister of someone. I was going to say, she wouldn't be in the friend group, right? She would be, because she is a different generation than than my amazing girls trip lady. So she'd have to be the young sister, maybe the niece, Mm -hmm. the, you know, or maybe, maybe, you know, like a little film fatale situation. Somebody's man got their eye (laughs) on her. I'm just, that's funny. That's funny. It's funny to throw her in there and throw her. You know her, and, and and she's and you know everyone on Chloe. They love Chloe. She's so it'd be it'd be funny to throw her in there to kind of throw the ladies off kilter a throw, little bit. That would be off. funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She walk in. They don't like. There's a scene in, in Praise This way where uh one of the hating church ladies see her walk in and say, "Look at her with her flat. I ain't had no kid's stomach." Like they tell a little <laughs> joke like that. <laughs> we can play something like that. I don't know, Rachel. That's a good idea. We 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 working on the script. For mm-hmm. Girls Trip right now, uh, Kenya Barris, of course, and Tracy mm-hmm. Oliver are in the lab right now as we speak, working on the sequel script. So you might have put an idea in my head, Rachel. I'm not going to lie. So if it happens, y'all will know where it came from. Higher learning, baby. Make if, you had to, if you have to anticipate <laughs> a release a release gear for a Girls Trip 2, just, you know, it's not seem it. What would you say if you had to <laughs> oh. anticipate a release year? Well, We're you guys know how long these things take. I'm yeah. working on this script now, and that takes a while. You figure you could go into production probably like top of next year, earliest maybe. You got to check the ladies' schedules. So then you're talking about earliest would be the end of next year. So mm. like I'd say you're looking at a late 24, perhaps more realistically sometime in 25. And I'm just, you know, again, yeah. don't hold me to it. Don't quote me, but just the way the typical cycle kind of works. That's that's a fair range. Right. Do you anticipate uh, producing the Oscars again? Never. No mm. interest whatsoever. Couldn't Why? pay me. Why is that? Because I've done it. I've done it. And this and this has nothing to do with with this lap. Um I here's the thing. I actually uh turned down producing the Oscar for several years before I agreed to do it. Oh. I had been approached prior to. And what people outside of that world don't really recognize is how much, how labor-intensive it is to produce a show like that. And I knew it. And I kept saying, you know, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm flattered, but I don't, I don't have the time. And that was true. I didn't. But one of the things that I say when I 
like when I speak to people, especially when I'm speaking to young people, I tell this to my own kids. I say, do the thing that scares you the most. What are you running from? Hit it head on and go out and do it. And I had to look myself in the mirror. And I said, you know, keep turning down these Oscars. Is that the thing that's scaring you? Like, you got to hit this head on, Will. You're never going to not be busy. And so I agreed to do it, of course, in 2022. And it was an incredible experience. It really was. But man, it's like producing 10 movies at once. It is unbelievable uh, how much goes into a show like that. And well before the show even happened, I said, okay, all right. It's funny because I actually called up uh, Reggie Hudlin had done the show before, speaking of the Hudlin brothers. Um, Jesse Collins had been a part of a producing team that, that had done the show. Um, I called a couple other people and they all said, oh yeah, you should do it. Yes, absolutely do it. I was about halfway in. I called them all and I said, I thought we were friends. <laughs> Why, in the hell? Why in the hell didn't you tell me how crazy this shit was? I literally <laughs> called. I said, what? I thought you were my guy. Um, I, I, I knew halfway through, I was like, okay, I would never do this again. It, it, here's the thing. It's the thing that you do when you are done with your active Hollywood career. It's the uh, thing you do at the end, like for legacy. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, I've made the movies. I'm slowing down. Before I retire, let me do, you know, this last thing to put the perfect period on a career, right? You don't, I don't advise it for people that are as busy as I am with everything else I got going on. Cause I basically had to shut a lot of that down. Now I got a great team that kept stuff going, but my personal focus was on that Oscars for a good, you know, seven, eight months. And that's oh, just, wow. that's a lot of time for, mm-hmm. for somebody in my position. So I, I've, I've done it. I still remain very proud of that show, but no, there's not a, there's not a blank check that would get me back to do that again. y'all. I'm, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> or, um, all right. We got to let Will Packer go. Uh, he's a busy man. We appreciate the time yes. that you made for us today, brother. Course, I remain I appreciate in, in awe, proud, and indebted to you. Like I said before, man, um, Praise This is out right now on Peacock. Go watch it. I'm not selling wolf tickets. The movie Listen, is a whole lot of fun. My guy VL said it's delightful. Like, I'm putting that on a, on a testimonial <laughs> joint. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, variety, provocative, Hollywood reporter, hard-hitting. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> New York Times, amazing music, Van. Lathan, delightful. That's what I want. I got that. I got the endorsement I need. I'm running with that, y'all. <laughs> Thank you, Will. Kelly, I appreciate y'all. Thank I love you y'all. so y'all much. Take care. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Take care, y'all. All right. Great conversation with Will. Yeah. And I just love that moment y'all had off the top. That's this. You don't always get to thank people who help you out. You don't always get those full circle moments. So, you know. Did you ever, glad did you, ever, that. you ever thank Soup Kitchen? Um, <laughs> let's move on. Is, is soup kitchen is soup kitchen your will packer? God no, <laughs> that, but that's what that's what people would like to think. He gave he gave her everything so that she stupid. had. Why yeah, why do they say that? Why is he's the host of the show? How, like how can he, he gave her given, everything? Why it's so weird when they say that people think that your will packer is soup kitchen. That's wild, right? Um, all right. Do you remember Immature? Remember the the the, the group? Yeah. Marcus Houston. Marcus Constantly Houston. Constantly 
it was. My sister used was, to walk around singing all that because her name is Constance. What were their oh, names? It was Romeo, Batman, and who? What was the third one? Oh, shoot. Romeo, Batman. Wait, because Romeo, Bat... Oh, Marcus Houston man. Was, Marcus, man. Was Romeo, <laughs> Batman. LDB. Oh, LDB. LDB. And Little Drummer Boy. Romeo, Batman, and LDB. Because it was two different. Remember Field of Flow? Field of Flow. Thank you. Okay, anyway. Immature, I had Marcus Houston in it. Marcus Houston went on to have a career, a successful career as a solo artist. And yes. what? What? Oh, no. I just realized Stomp the Yard. Marcus Houston. It's Marcus Houston. You know Will, I mean? One of Will Packers movies. One of Will yes. Packers movies. And he also had a song that I loved uh, at the time. And it was called Off in the Club. Remember that? Oh, he had the song I used to love. Yes, I remember that. But he, we're talking about solo. Mm-hmm. He had the song I loved called Naked. Yeah, see, I didn't dig that song as much. Oh, I loved it. A lot of people like, uh, Off in the Club was Marcus Houston and R. Kelly. Which brings us to our next topic. <laughs> oh, shit. When did that come out? Wait, hold on. When that was that like 2002. It was 2002 oh. or 2003. Maybe 2003. Maybe even 2004. But, but Off in the Club, Marcus Houston, and and um and R. Kelly. And I just remember that was the first time I heard R. Kelly call himself the Pie Piper. And I thought, bad nigga. That's interesting. <laughs> I th- like it was, it came on MH and Pie Piper. And I was like, the song was it was a hit. Joe Budden is on that song. Mm-hmm. Would you do it? Would you do it? Do it how you do it to me. You know, that was one of my joints, but this is not a bad nickname for R. Kelly, Pie Piper. He's a guy who plays his music and makes the and leads the kids away. Not great. Um Marcus Houston was uh, you know, embroiled in a little bit of the old tweet sphere controversy. Hmm. He is around my age. Okay. I'm either a year older or a year younger than Marcus Houston. I'm currently 42. Uh, he married his wife when he was 37 and she was 19. Mm-hmm. He met his wife. Uh, oh, excuse me. He married his wife, sorry, when he was 39 and she was 19. He met his wife when he was 37 and she was 17. All right. Uh, he is promoting an episode of ca- called Uncensored, uh, promoting a TV show called Uncensored, where he went on t- to talk about what people think about his relationship with his wife. People joke about him and call him a creep. And the allegations that he groomed her for a couple of years before he put a ring on. Donnie, run the clip. Me and my wife's situation is a little different. You know, how we were, how we met, you know, through mutual friends and everything like that. You know, I, when I met my wife, she was 17. So, you know, we had no really conversation and no really connection until... You know, she was of age and, you know, it's, people don't understand. <laughs> and I got a lot of, of course, I got a lot of backlash for marrying someone that was 19. And, you know, when we did finally start to talk, I was like, this woman is like me. And she was it's like, when I would talk to her, she just, for one, we had a spiritual connection. And I feel like that's the most important thing. 
We both loved God. We both loved Jehovah. And that was key. And being able to start being around her and talking to her and talking to like, we got it. We, we, we connected through music and, you know, all right, uh, cut all this shit off. Okay, uh, so he, so look, people were getting on Marcus Houston's ass. As they should. So you think it's creepy that Marcus Houston married his, uh, met his wife, Maya Dick Dickey, when she was 17, and then married her when she was 19. And you don't? I'm asking you, do yes. you think, do you I think that think it's true? It. Do you think that it's true? No. That he met her at 17 and they had no communication until she was 18 and got married at 19. So how'd you meet her? You met her? Y'all didn't talk? Y'all didn't exchange? So then you, you, you came back? I feel like if you saw her at 17 and you came back when she was of age and started up a conversation and connection, you would have said that. You met her at 17. You obviously had some type of attraction, connection, conversation with this woman. I saw somebody say, boy, they'll just sprinkle Jesus on it and try to make it all better. That was hilarious to me. So, <laughs> so wait a minute. So, obviously, I think that the age difference is really, really, you know, we talked about the Kawhi Bailey thing. I think the age difference is kind of fucking crazy here, right? Like, 37 to 17, when you meet a 17-year-old girl, there probably shouldn't be anything in your mind, like, yo, you know, whatever, she kind of whatever. Uh, I'm not in the position to meet a 17-year-old. I mean, well, you're not Marcus Houston, you know? I'm not Mar looking for it. Right. Marcus Houston might be out here at the different video shoots and stuff like that, and the girls are coming through or whatever. Who knows? Um, so, look, I, it's obviously fucked up to me. Obviously. There are some people, though, that are going to wonder why it's fucked up to you when you've shot so much bail to Larsa Pippen. Totally different situation. <laughs> First off, Marcus is in his 30s. That's fast. They did not start any type of relationship until, I, I let's just say he's 32. I think that's what he is. Until he is 14 years past, 15 years past, 17. Right, okay. Facts. So this isn't even the same level. There was no, and actually, Larson has come out and said that when she got with Scotty, it was towards the end of him playing with Michael, and she never met the kid. That's the a kids. fucking lie. That's what but she that's, said. That's, that's what she said. They, they won championships, and the whole family was at the parades. And to, when did she get married? A, that's a fucking lie. That's what she said. Like, okay, so look, so it, were they on I, the same flow? I don't know. <laughs> that I don't believe her for one. But second. even if she was. I don't care if they were sharing the same flow. I don't care if he sat next to her. Years passed. He's of age. So is she. She didn't, because what this looks like with Marcus Houston, it looks like grooming. I'm sorry. It's what it looks like. Looks like grooming. This nigga might as well open up his own hair salon. <laughs> it is like, 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 what the fuck? You Marcus can't Houston accuse Larsa of that. You might be grossed out because she, her ex-husband played with his dad. I can see that. And she might have known him when he was a child, but you in no way can say that she grooms this person. And that's what it looks like with Marcus. It's too close. It's too soon. This girl's too young. And I don't care how you try to twist and turn it. You were eyeing her when she was a minor. You can't, 
you can't confuse, you can't, you can't accuse her of grooming, but you can accuse her of looming. She loomed. For 15 years? She was waiting. What was she waiting for? Stop. She was waiting. She was waiting. She probably helped that nigga. No, Marcus Houston waited. No, Marcus Houston definitely waited. Uh, Well, we think. That's that's the story, too. We don't know. Okay, so what are the percentage chances that you think that Marcus Houston, like, was definitely talking to this girl when she was 17, What's the percentage? Yeah. 100. (laughs) What? You should there, he should not have done this interview. Just there was take no the way L, around it. There was no way around it. Take the L and live happily ever after with there the was, child. There was no way around it. No way around it. And you know, I just gotta be honest with you about something else. It would be we would be completely, completely sort of irresponsible if we didn't at least discuss some of the talk, the innuendo, and the rumors that have associated themselves with the whole crew over there at TUG. This is not me coming, you know, this is Chris Stokes and all of this stuff. Oh. And these are child artists. And this is none of this stuff is provable or has been proven, should I say. But in the case of a Marcus Houston, being with someone that's that young, right? If you know the history and the allegations and the talk that's been surrounded by everything over there, mm-hmm. it looks away, and it looks like something that he might have learned. That's not me saying that. I'm just saying it's an extra added source of scrutiny for him. Mm-hmm. All right, doesn't look great. Don't do that if you can. Just be quiet, Marcus, and also go. Don't give hand jobs to people that you knew when they were seven years old. So, I mean, oh, either way, it's bad. You're talking about the like, other, okay. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. Just don't, mm-hmm. don't have sex with and have mm-hmm. oral with people that you knew right, before, right, right. when they were kids. You know, don't, don't do any of that. Uh, all right, uh, mailback. Mailback time. Time to read your letters and then we'll reply to them. Oh, it's mailbag time. Write us with your queries and we'll chime in. All right. Uh, first mailbag question is from Gotas de Mil. They ask, would you rather be trapped in a romantic comedy with your enemies or trapped in a horror movie with your friends? Horror movie with my friends. We're gonna figure yeah, that shit out. I would too. That'd be, yeah. yeah. Or would be my friends. We're going to figure that shit out. Yeah. I don't want to be with my enemies ever. The romantic <laughs> comedy is not going to make it any better. All right, cool. That was easy. Uh, next one from Ty Comedy. He asks, this one's kind of serious. How do you know when it's time to move on or it's just a rough patch in a relationship? I feel like the moment you typed out that question lets me know it's time for you to move on from whatever it is that you're in. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like I really feel like that. It got that bad when you're asking advice from two people who are not relationship experts. It's bad. Well, who's a tie? Yeah. Ty, it's time to move on. Um, what I would say, Ty, is this. <laughs> this is what I would say, Ty. Is that relationships are about how much you want them sometimes. When mm-hmm. you're in a relationship with somebody for a long time, there's this 
uh, notion that you are going to be in love with them every second and every minute and every hour of, of every day. It's not true, Ty. Sometimes you are in love and sometimes you are out of love. The question is, what's keeping you with someone during the times that you have actually fallen out of love with them? What's the basis and the foundation that holds you around? What makes you stay in a working, committed fashion with someone in the times where you really don't feel that for them? If you can answer that question, it's probably going to be about more than your feelings. It's probably going to be about your life, the life that you've made, what you've sacrificed, what they've sacrificed, what you've built. And those, to me, are things that can be reaccessed during the times that the feelings are lean. That's what I would say. Wow. I think we just developed a new segment on higher learning. <laughs> that was absolutely beautiful. It sounds like something my therapist has said to me. <laughs> to be very honest with you, that was absolutely beautiful. I do feel like when you, a lot of times we know, like I'm thinking of the last relationship that ended. A lot of times you do know but you've put so much blood, sweat, and tears into a relationship that it's so scary to think what's on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. So I would say, in addition to everything Van just said, trust your intuition. Like, don't stay out of convenience in a relationship. Don't stay because you're scared to leave. Or sometimes it's even scared to leave, like, family or friends that you've connected with. Just like the... the well, not the loyalty, but just like the security. That's the word I'm looking for. Security that you have in a relationship. So I would just ask yourself within and be honest with yourself. And at the end of the day, if it is, turns out it doesn't work out, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. There is something on the other side of it. Yeah. Like, just, you know, don't Marcus Houston's situation. All right, Donnie, I'm not, we're going to take any more mailback questions. I got to say something before we leave real quick. I have to make an apology, a very public apology and an apology that's is important for me to make. I like to apologize to my grandmother, my mamo, mm. Geraldine Ellis. I'll tell you why I am apologizing. Uh, in the wake of my uncle David's death, I shared some stories about my uncle David. Okay, you guys have to understand. For me, I'm talking to the audience here, not to my, my to my to my grandmother. All of these things to me are instances and things that have happened in my life. They have made up who I am. They have colored who I am. I am ashamed of nothing. I am ashamed of no one. I accept my family and my friends for everything that they have done, the totality of who they are, all of their flaws, all of their strengths. I accept my father for who he was and who he wasn't. I accept my mother for who she is and what, who, and what she wants what it is. So when I talk about somebody, it comes with an, an acceptance for me of who that person was and uh, the feeling and the knowledge that I love them anyway. So I don't care what you guys think about anybody that I'm talking about. I know these people for what they are and who they are and I love them anyway. That's the way I look at it. Mm -hmm. What I didn't consider is how sometimes talking about someone reflects to the other people in my life who love them. Yeah. That was my grandmother's son. She is in mourning. There are things about him that she just doesn't want to hear or talk about right now. 
And one particular story I told was something that my uncle and I joked about and in the times that I talked to him before he passed away. It was top of mind, and I said it. I won't repeat it now. Uh, I apologize to my grandmother for making her feel bad. I appreciate that she listens to this podcast. I appreciate uh, that she's always interested in everything that I do, and I love her to the ends of the earth. Okay? And, I, and so I am sorry for that. I have my own memories with him. I have my own situations with him. I apologize. I will say this, though. Out there. I am who the fuck I am. It doesn't matter whether or not we share DNA or not. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. I am who I am. And there's absolutely nothing in my life. This is goes out to the people who are closest to me. Absolutely nothing in my life that's too precious for me to not express how I feel about it. Now, there might be some things in your life that are that way, and I would never mm-hmm. talk about those. But there's nothing in my life that, that's too precious for me not to share it. Because everything that I don't get out fucking corrodes my brain. It's a defense mechanism for me. So I want people to understand that I don't mean any harm by this. And I don't mean any injury by this, but this is who I fucking am. And if you didn't help build me, then I'm certainly not going to fucking let you help build me now. But as far as my grandmother goes, uh, I apologize to her and what she said or, 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 and how she felt has merit. Okay. I'm sorry. I love you, mama. I love Mm -hmm. you, mama. I love you, Ebony. Get off my phone with the bullshit. But I love you, Ebony. All right. Rachel, do you have... Momo listens to the podcast. Momo listens to everybody. <laughs> Momo, Momo, is, Momo is great. Momo is great. I love my, my grandmother. Wouldn't be who I was uh, without my grandmother. And that's for sure. Um, you got to expect the ally of the week? No. People have me very upset. Very okay. upset. So I actually do have one. Okay. It's okay. I had one last week. Uh. Okay, this guy is great. So <laughs> Candace Owens told a story. And the story was about uh, her wanting to get her house decorated. Okay. And she, wa- she wanted to get her ho- house decorated by celebrity house decorator um, David Netta. Okay. Her husband, George Farmer, who is the CEO of Parlor, reached out to David Netta, who is a well-regarded interior de- de- designer, described by architectural, the architectural Digest. You guys, the vibe answers well enough. I'm sorry. We're, wearing, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're As a done. true designer's designer. He does luxury homes all over the place. They reached out to him to get him to design their home. And this uh-huh. is David's reply. Dear George, thanks for your inquiry. I'd rather be hit in the ass with a wooden <laughs> plank than ever go near either of you. <laughs> kind regards, David. <laughs> that is the epitome of the unexpected ally of the week. <laughs> he might be unexpected ally of the pop. The year? <laughs> yeah, of the year. He's way up there. This is a guy I'd never heard of before. It's definitely unexpected. As motherfucker said, he'd rather be whooped with a plank <laughs> than go near either of you guys. All right, that's mine. 
It's that's hilarious. That's great. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't have one because that's it. <laughs> that's uh-huh. the one. All right. Take the caps off, but do not stop learning. I am Van Lathan Jr. I'm Rachel and Lindsay. Bye, guys. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.